Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 241. It's titled, Do Budget Deficits Matter? Modern Monetary Theory Explained. Last month, U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez told Business Insider, and here's a quote from the article, she said she was open to modern monetary theory, a burgeoning theory among some economists posting that the federal debt is not an economic restraint for the U.S. She said the idea, which holds that the government doesn't need to balance the budget and that budget surpluses actually hurt the economy, absolutely needed to be a larger part of our conversation. Last week's philanthropist Bill Gates said on the Vergecast podcast, he was asked, so you're not an inherent of modern monetary theory that says, don't worry about the deficit? We'll just print the money and do it? Gates says, that is some crazy talk. Finally, Ben Hunt, he's co-founder and chief investment officer of Second Foundation Partners, publisher of Epsilon Theory. I've quoted from him in the past. I highly respect his point of view when it comes to investing. He wrote, MMT, which is short for modern monetary theory, is the sovereign-friendly justification for deficit spending without end. What is this modern monetary theory? And is it crazy talk? It's an economic theory that was influenced by the work of 20th century economists George Frederick Knapp, Alfred Mitchell Eanes, Abba Lerner, and Hyman Minsky. Later, the theory was further developed by Warren Mosler, L. Randall Ray, Stephanie Kelton, Bill Mitchell, and Pavlina Cherniva. I first became exposed to modern monetary theory right after the global financial crisis. I read as much as I could about it. And indeed, it sounded like crazy talk. It was mind-blowing. But I learned it, and I accepted some of the principles because they are the best explanations I have found for how the economy and financial system really works. I've taught principles from MMT on this podcast. I talked about what is money, what are budget deficits, how the federal debt works. Those are principles that come from MMT. But that doesn't mean I accept all of the policy proposals that come out of that particular school of thought, such as job guarantees. I still think there's constraints, and there's things I'm concerned about that I'll talk about in this podcast. But first, I want to describe what are some of these core beliefs of modern monetary theory. And I'm going to quote from some of these economists, because I think they do a very good job explaining it. The first principle is that taxes create demand for otherwise worthless fiat money. Fiat money, it's money not backed by anything. that It can't be converted into gold. U.S. dollars are a non-interest-bearing liability of the Federal Reserve Bank. I was at the thrift store this week 
and I saw a book at the bottom shelf, and it was titled Operation of the New Banked Act. And I thought, what new banked bank act? Turned out the book was published in 1914, and they were talking about the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 that created Federal Reserve and issued Federal Reserve notes, which we know as U.S. dollars. The reliability of the Federal Reserve. They're not backed by anything. What is it then? Why do we use these dollars? Why do we trust them? Well, one reason, and and here's Warren Mosler, he writes, taxes create an ongoing need in the economy to get dollars, and therefore an ongoing need for people to sell their goods and services and labor to get dollars. With tax liabilities in place, the government can buy things with its otherwise worthless dollars because someone needs the dollars to pay taxes. They believe that the fact that the federal government requires payment, in the case of the U.S., in U.S. dollars, that that provides an inherent demand for those dollars and is one reason why we trust those dollars. We're willing to use these non-interest-bearing Federal Reserve notes to buy things. That's the first principle. The second principle is taxes and government bonds do not finance the federal government. That's not why taxes and government bonds exist. That the government doesn't need money from the private sector in order to finance its operations. Here's Pavlina Cherniva. She writes, while taxes create demand for reserves, coins, and currency in circulation, treasury securities are simply instruments that convert interest-free reserves, for which taxes have already created the demand, into interest-bearing assets. As the modern money approach explains, reserves and treasury securities are both liabilities of a sovereign government denominated in the domestic currency, and there is no limit to which these two agents can issue one or the other. She's saying the primary reason that treasury bonds exist is to be an asset of the private sector to invest in, to earn some interest, to to take some of their non-interest-bearing dollars and put them into something that earns interest. Now, how can that be? Doesn't the government need money to operate? These reserves he talks about or mentions are accounts that commercial banks and the U.S. government hold at the Federal Reserve. They're essentially checking accounts at the Federal Reserve. Geneva continues, when the Treasury spends, non-government entities who receive the income also receive brand new bank deposits. This is because when the Fed clears the government expenditures, It credits private bank accounts with reserves. We know from earlier episodes on quantitative easing that the Federal Reserve can create money out of thin air. It's just digits. Stephanie Kelton calls it the power of the keyboard. Warren Moser calls it changing the score on the scoreboard. It's an accounting entry. The Federal Reserve simply changes the account balances of these commercial bank reserves, and that flows through 
to the actual commercial bank balances of individuals that receive the money the government spends, be it a, a Social Security recipient. In other words, the government doesn't need to wait for the money to come in through taxation. It simply directs the Federal Reserve to pay out. Bill Mitchell writes, Governments do not spend by printing money. They spend by creating deposits in the private banking system. When the federal government spends, its checking account at the Federal Reserve is reduced at the central bank and the checking account of the private sector, household, or business is increased. Warren Mosler writes, when the accountant's debits subtract from the account called government, when government spends, they also credit, add to the accounts of whoever gets those funds. When the government account goes down, some other account goes up by exactly the same amount. But it's just changing the digits. This is important because of point three that modern monetary theory believes in terms of the principles. It's that budget deficits increase the net financial assets of the private sector. It's budget deficits that allow the private sector to save. Warren Mosler writes, the U.S. government deficit exactly equals the total net increase in the holdings of U.S. financial assets of the rest of us. Businesses, households, residents, and non-residents, what is called the non-government sector. He gives an example, and this is real, this is critical to understanding MMT. He says, you start with the government selling $100 billion in treasury securities. Nobody demands that people buy these. They, they're offered in the marketplace. Investors buy them. And so there's $100 billion sold. Mosul points out, when the buyers of these securities pay for them, checking accounts at the Fed are reduced by $100 billion to make the payments. So the buyers' checking accounts are reduced by $100 billion. Their savings accounts are increased. So there's no new non-government savings at this point. Wealth is not increased. It's simply exchanging the balance in a checking account of the private sector. They now have an interest-bearing asset. The next thing that happens is the Treasury spends $100 billion after they sold $100 billion and new Treasury securities on the things the government spends money on. This Treasury spending, Mosul points out, adds back $100 billion to someone's checking account. Because again, the Federal Reserve changes the digits, credits the private sector with the $100 billion. So the non-government sector now has its $100 billion of checking accounts back and it has that $100 billion of new treasury securities because it bought treasury securities with its checking account savings. The federal government then spent $100 billion and that money also went to the private sector. Their checking account balances went up. It's known as vertical money. Bill Mitchell puts it this way. The only entity that can provide the non-government sector with net financial assets net savings, and thereby simultaneously accommodate any net desire to save is the currency monopolist, the government. In the private sector, savings is income less expenses. And every dollar spent by the private sector is someone else's income. As businesses buy from each other, one business sells to another. The business that bought something has an expense 
the business that sold something has income. Household salaries are business expenses, but household income, it all has to match. The expenditures, what is spent, equals other people's income. In order to save, you have to spend less than your income. The only way the private sector can do that, be net savers, if some other entity is spending more than their income, they're running a surplus. That entity is the federal government. The other way the private sector can get additional income to save is if a country runs a trade surplus. In the U.S., we run a trade deficit, so that's actually causes income to flow out. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking that if the private sector, if debt balances went up by the private sector, if they borrowed money from banks, banks can create that money, that that would allow the private sector to be net savers, but that wouldn't be because it is, as you borrow money, you're essentially dis-savings. You're going into debt. And so across the entire private sector, savings would not go up if private debt balances go up. The opposite happens when the federal government runs a budget surplus. In that case, that reduces the net savings of the private sector because in order to run a surplus, the private sector has to pay more in taxes than the government spends. Taxes destroys money. It reduces the amount of money, the net financial assets, within the private sector. And then a final point, it's the private sector that determines the size of the budget deficit. Because if the private sector decides that they want to save more, then they're going to spend less, which means other private sector entities are going to have less income, which means they're going to pay less in taxes, lower tax revenue. The government expenditures stay the same. That means the budget deficit will increase. It's the private sector that determines the size of the budget deficit based on how much they want to save. Those five core beliefs summarize modern monetary theory. First, taxes create demand for otherwise worthless fiat money. Two, taxes and government bonds do not finance federal government expenditures. Three, budget deficits increase the net financial assets of the private sector. Four, taxes destroy money and budget surpluses reduce net financial assets. When five, the private sector determines the size of the deficit. Now, what about the concerns with modern monetary theory? Before we explore those concerns, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. The first is what is known as crowding out. Crowding out in a financial context means The new supply of government bonds from all the borrowing the federal government is doing pushes up interest rates, and those higher rates discourage borrowing by the private sector, by businesses, to invest in productivity-enhancing projects and innovative ideas because it costs too much to borrow. And it costs too much to borrow because there's a huge supply of treasury bonds because the budget deficit is high. And the government is borrowing money as part of balancing their accounting books. But here's the thing with 
modern monetary theory. We just learned that they believe, and we showed, that as government runs a budget deficit, that increases the net financial assets of the private sector, it gives them more savings, which theoretically would, in, would increase the demand for government bonds. So it should be neutral. But here's an expression of that concern. This is from an article in the Wall Street Journal by Gerald F. Save. It's worrying about deficits falls out of style. He writes, one of the reasons deficit concerns are low is that the country has been living with big federal deficits for a long while now. And the economic calamity, some predicted, has never materialized. In fact, the economy has been on a long, steady growth curve as deficits have risen. In the broader economy, government borrowing hasn't crowded out other investments, at least not in a big way. The alarmist predictions haven't come to pass. MMT has an answer for why they haven't come to pass. Here's Pavlina Cherniva. She writes, conversely, a rise in government sector deficit spending is exactly equivalent to the rise in surpluses in the non-government sector. That is, when governments spend more than they collect in taxes, the non-government sector earns more than it pays in taxes. In other words, deficits always generate a crowding in effect and put downward pressure on interest rates. Sort of the exact opposite of traditional economic theory. The evidence to date suggests that the MMT proponents are correct, that the private sector has gotten more wealthy as deficits have increased and has not pushed interest rates higher. One of my concerns is people lose faith in the federal government and central banks. Right now, interest rates are low because the term premium is low. One factor that determines interest rates are inflation expectations, which are low, the anticipated direction of short-term rates in terms of what, what is the Federal Reserve going to do in terms of their policy rate. Right now, they've decided effectively to put rates on hold. They're being patient. But there's a third component called the term premium, and it's the additional yield investors demand for uncertainty regarding inflation and uncertainty regarding Federal Reserve action, their trust in the Federal Reserve. Right now, it's effectively zero to negative. But if that trust dissipates, there have been times when the term premium has been 4 or 5% and higher. We haven't seen it crowding out, but if there's a lack of trust, if there's just not an understanding or there's concern, then that could increase lead to higher rates, which could lead to a crowding out as, as private sector couldn't afford some of the projects that they wanted to pursue. That's one of my concerns. Another concern is the concern that those that believe in modern monetary theory have. There's a constraint. You can't just spend indefinitely. The constraint is if too much money is created through deficit spending, too much net financial assets increase to the private sector that spends it, and that's growing faster than the ability of the private sector to produce new goods and services, that can lead to capacity constraints and inflation. So it's not as if you can spend as much as you want, but one of the 
ongoing discussions is how much could the federal government spend? How much of a deficit could it run before inflation becomes a concern? And I don't know, but it's definitely one of my concerns. The other concern is that as interest rates, if the term premium gets much higher, where interest rates are higher than the rate of nominal GDP growth, the growth in the economy, then you get a situation where potentially you get the debt, the federal debt keeps going higher and higher as a percent of GDP, and the Federal Reserve has to step in and effectively control rates across the yield curve, just like essentially happening in Japan, where the Japanese central bank has said, we will buy Japanese government bonds and enforce a 0% interest rate. The Federal Reserve has that power. They can create unlimited money to monetize the debt. My concern with that is the distortions in the private sector in terms of interest rates then don't become any means of, of directing what would be viable projects. It could lead to additional bubbles, asset bubbles, if the Federal Reserve ended up controlling rates like that. So I am concerned about where some of the conclusions of modern monetary theory could lead. I agree with Representative Ocasio-Cortez that it should be part of the overall conversation. We ought to understand how the economic system works, how these different accounts interact, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, the creation of net financial assets. Before we just dismiss MMT as crazy talk, let's understand what aspects about it actually explains how the economy works. And the data today suggests modern monetary theory, their description of how the economy and financial system actually works is correct. Now, what does that mean in terms of policy, in terms of distribution, what the government spends money on? Recognizing that the vast majority of the wealth is not created by the government running a budget deficit. It's created by the private sector as they innovate, create jobs, become more productive. As the population grows, that is what creates wealth, not the federal government. And so there's always a balance. How much role should the federal government have? And that's the discussion it sounds like we're going to be having a great deal of as part of the 2020 presidential race. But at least now you have an understanding of what modern monetary theory is. You won't dismiss it out of hand. You'll, you'll look at it, think about it, and then think about whether some of their policy prescriptions, such as the New Green Deal, job guarantees, free college education for everyone, makes sense. The government could afford it to an, ex to an extent because there is unlimited money, but it could constrain capacity. It could lead to higher inflation. It could lead to distrust in the federal government and higher rates, rates so high as a term premium increases that the Federal Reserve has to step in and control rates, further distorting the private economy. Finally, to answer the question, do federal budget deficits matter? They do. Ideally, in most periods, as a percent of gross domestic product, the deficit should be modest. The Congressional Budget Office projects over the next 10 years in 2018, the federal budget deficit was 3.8% of GDP. In 
of gross domestic product. They're predicting a budget deficit of 4.2% for next year. And it's pretty steady at around 4, 4.5% over the next 10 years. So that that's reasonable. If it gets much higher than that, then potentially we we have issues. And again, that deficit is a function of how much the private sector wants to save. Certainly, how much the government spends impacts the budget, but in any given year, it depends on how much the private sector wants to save because as they desire to save more, they spend less and tax revenue falls and the deficit as a percent of GDP increases. That's episode 241. You can get show notes and all the links for the MMT economist that I quoted at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. I'll send you those show notes and links each week along with a essay do covering topics on the economy, money, things that didn't make it in the podcast, some of the best writing I do each week. You can find that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education, not considered your specific risk situation, not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.